We are like half staff, I'd guess you say, or half the team is here this morning. Uh, but I've been very blessed with how flexible everybody's been. We've had to switch people around. Drake was supposed to be up here. We had to call him to the sound booth. Lance was able to make it. And then uh, Yannicka said, if you don't have anybody to cover offering this morning, I've come prepared to do that. So it's just amazing how the Lord works behind the scenes, uh, keeps his people going. But I'm um, blessed to be here this morning. We have a few empty spots. I don't know what that means. It's kind of strange um, with, with these spots and how you guys didn't like group together. We all like sheep. We are in a really important passage this morning. Uh, we have been, we're back now to our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to this church um, filled with people who were not God's people, pagans, didn't really know much about the God of the Hebrews. And Paul came and preached the gospel and the truth to them. It resonated with their hearts. And lo and behold, there's a, a, a strong church, a group of believers right there in that pagan city. And in this passage, or even in, the, in chapter 4 and 5, we have been generously treated to truths from God that are important to us. And these are truths that we would not conclude on our own based on our own observation of how the world works. So as, as we look at that passage, or this passage this morning, keep that in mind. This, God is very generous to us with His Holy Word. It, so far, we've talked about uh, our bodies. What are our bodies for? And what happens to our bodies when we die? I mean, that's pretty important stuff. And we would not know the answers to this if God did not reveal them to us from heaven. Uh, we talked about judgment. Is there such a thing as judgment or is this all there is? Will we really face a judge when we die? And Paul talked to us about that. He talked to us about even as believers, will we be judged to, for our works and the way we live? Does it really matter if all your sins have been forgiven and God's grace has filled you up to overflowing? Does it really matter how we live? Paul has instructed us about that. Yes, it does. But I'm grateful for, um, for God's word this morning. I'm so grateful because as I think about what... Um, Jesus is going to say to us this morning. There are ways for us to understand and know truth and figure things out on our own. You know, you have uh, empiricism where, where you, want, you want to be able to see it or touch it or taste it and then you can know it's real and then we use ration or reason, rationale, and we can deduce things based on facts and so forth. And then you have uh, God's revelation that speaks into all of that. There's different ways for us to know truth. But there are truths in this world, no matter how observant you are or how smart you are, you cannot know these things. And you are left to your own. And that's why we have in our world a lot of smart people with a lot of different answers about what meaning to life, why we're here, where are we going, what is the significance of anything. A lot of people way smarter than I am who are giving their speculation, but they will, if they're honest, even admit to you, we don't know. But we're a people of the book. And we think we do know. 
Not because we discovered it on our own, but because we came to this. Because God has revealed mysteries to us. So just keep in mind as we look at this passage, and it's, and it's really only a few verses. These are things that we would not know, but we do know because of God's grace and generosity by sharing His truths. And this morning's passage, <clears throat> I've entitled Reconciliation, the, the very heart of the gospel. And this particular passage is our theme for the entire book. And so I want to take some time here and think about what reconciliation is and what is God speaking to us. He's taken the time to preserve his word and share it with us. That we want to take the time to listen and understand. With that said, I'm going to jump right in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 18. <clears throat> so the Apostle Paul says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that is good news. That is incredible news. That one of the, the main activities that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is engaged in in this world. What's happening in our world? A lot of things are happening in our world, but what, the main thing that is happening in our world is that the God of the heavens is reconciling fallen people to himself, and he's doing it through Jesus Christ. Now, the word reconciliation means to reestablish a relationship that has been broken. To reestablish on uh, friendly terms that which has been broken. So it, it's the idea of God is making things right with sinful man. And he's doing it through the catalyst of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how he reconciles man. And we see this word reconciliation five times in this passage. So it's obviously something the Apostle Paul wants to communicate to the church, to people. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that's, that I read about this passage that I find very intriguing is that many scholars who look at, they really study Paul's letters and they look at how he says things and where he interjects things. And these scholars have concluded, based on the way this is written, that this particular passage or message was Paul's default gospel message as he traveled from town to town and from people to people. Like, you know, you can, you can share the gospel in a lot of different ways. You can use different passages and verses and have different techniques. 
But based on all of Paul's writings, they believe that this was the message that you were the most likely to hear if Paul came to your town and shared the gospel with you. So his, this is the one he would really want to nail home, that hence the heart of the gospel. Now, hopefully you have a default message, you have a default way to share the gospel, something that you have found very useful, so that you, if you ever have the opportunity to share it, you at least have a few verses or a few statements or something in your mind so that you can uh, share the gospel with people. Well, this is what was on Paul's heart and Paul's mind. He would go into a place, perhaps that had never even heard of God, and start talking about reconciliation. So reconciliation assumes that there has been a relationship that has been broken. It's been severed. And it needs to be reestablished. One of the things, as I was preparing for this this morning and reviewing, I I was reminded of um, teaching our children, you know, in the house, our kids. How do you teach relationship and reconciliation and the effects of sin? And um, one of the things we did is we take a number two pencil. I don't know if Abby remembers this because she was the youngest. But we take a number two pencil if, you know, if there was some brokenness, if there was sin or disobedience in the family. And, uh, and, and we'd say, this is what happens when, when we sin against each other or sin against God. We, we have this oneness in our relationship. And then we would break a perfectly good pencil. And their eyes would be like, because they weren't allowed to do that. Oh, you can't go around breaking pencils in our house. Not good pencils. So they knew this was serious teaching here. If mom and dad were breaking a pencil. Then look, we broke this. This is hard to get back together. And that's reconciliation. So it assumes that there, there's a relationship. There were friendly terms that were in place. But now they are broken and they, they need to be made right. They need to be mended. Because of the brokenness, you have enemies instead of friends, two parties here. And Paul tells us that the catalyst for this reconciliation, uh, the means is Christ, but the catalyst is God's people sharing the message of reconciliation. And he calls, uh, he, he says that this is our ministry. So it's not just apostleship. Or it's not just Paul, it's Paul's ministry team and any other believer. So who has the message of reconciliation to share with the world? Well, primarily those who have been reconciled, those who know Christ, those who have been mended and made right through Christ to God. He calls it a ministry. You know, that word ministry, it's deacon and it means to serve. And so, as you think about all the ways that we can serve God, we just served Him through our worship. We're serving God and living for God by being here in obedience. But another way for us to serve God is by sharing the message of reconciliation. He would see that as a service. He would see that as your means of ministering to people that need to be reconciled. And he takes it a little farther and he calls himself and his team, uh, ambassadors for Christ. Now, you know what an ambassador is. We have 
ambassadors from other countries. So it's, it's people sent on behalf of, in this day and age, uh, as Paul wrote, more sent on behalf of the king or a monarch. And I'm sending you as my ambassador with a message that I want you to give to this alien culture, this, this alien people. And so we are God's ambassadors. He sends us with a message of re- reconciliation into this world, which, of course, is alien to God. It's an alien culture. You can see, hopefully, God willing, you can see a huge difference between the way the world approaches life and the people of the church. True believers, those who have been reconciled, approach life. And so we have this message and we have to take it. We're taking it into an alien location. The people who aren't real familiar with our king. And this is the catalyst for people to hear the good news. Uh, we're servants. Remember, Paul has already called us clay pots. God's clay pots. And that's, that's a way to say that God makes us to serve him in particular ways. Just like a clay pot in that day was like a five-gallon bucket. And you could use it for a variety of things. And so we are God's clay pots in this, this ministry, our, our service. And so we go and we say what? When we have the opportunity, your sins, your offenses have alienated you from God. There's a brokenness here from your creator, the one who created all of this. The one who is being gracious to you even now in your sins. And he desires to be reconciled, to make this relationship right, to bring you back in in such a way that things operate the way they're supposed to be because it doesn't take much to conclude for us that this world and things are just not the way they're supposed to be. I mean... This morning was a challenge. Do we even have church? We wrestled with it last night. I wonder how many families would even come. And and is it a risk? Is it a health risk? We have to wrestle with these things. There's a lot of challenges in life. So carrying and proclaiming this message, it can be the greatest thing. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to lead somebody to Christ, but when God has done the work in advance and a heart is ready because the Spirit's already been speaking to this person and you're just the clay pot, you're the catalyst to come and share with this person the message, what you really need, what's really missing. Yes, all of those things matter and count, but what you really need is to be reconciled with God and He has provided a way for you to do that. It is a beautiful thing, but it can also be terrifying and it can literally be dangerous. And we have read countless passages and we're only in chapter five where the apostle Paul, just to share this message, to carry it from person to person in town to town, has faced numerous near death experiences. And this is because. Not everybody is warm and fuzzy and wants to hear this message because sin makes us really hard-headed. Sin makes us really mean. Sin makes us not want to hear the truth. Keep it to yourself. And so as glorious as it is, we just have to know that as ambassadors, 
It's not always a warm, fuzzy, milk and cookies greeting or welcoming for us. And yet Paul keeps going. And we have read that as an ambassador, if we are faced with so much suffering, why would you not throw in the towel? Why wouldn't you just quit if it's going to be that hard sometimes? And we found that Paul's motivation was the love of God. And that's our motivation. And before I jump into my first point, I just want to say one thing I think is very important. And that is a lot of times we need to be careful because our love for God is a tremendous motivation. I mean, we we love God. That's why we do what we do. But a greater motivation for us is God's love for us. Because our love can waver. Our love can grow weak. Our love can be confused. We can doubt things. Is it really worth it? God, where are you in my life? Well, it's God's love that never wavers. He's always faithful. It's as strong as love can get. It is on us. And always on and upon us and in us. And so that's the greatest motivation. And if you've been here for a while, you'll realize that, that Paul even, or actually it was the psalmist, we looked at a psalm where he prayed for God to close the gap. Now, he's, he had faith in God, the psalmist, it was David. He had faith in God. He knew the right answers, and that is God's omnipresent. And that is, he's always near us in that sense. But he felt a relational gap, and he prayed God, will you, will you close this gap so I can experience you? And so God's love is a tremendous motivation for us to press on in the glory of the gospel. So having said all that kind of as introduction and preparation to bring us back up to speed, here's the first thing that I think we want to know, or it's the first thing that Paul reveals to us about this ministry of reconciliation. And that is, first of all, it is all of God. Like this is the foundation. This is the first thing we need to understand about it. In verse 18, all of this is from God. Is it from you? Do we play a part? Yes. But is the gift from us? Is, is it initiated by us? Not at all. Was it planned or designed? Did we come up with this great plan? Not at all. All of the outworking of reconciliation, including the message, including the servants and the ambassadors, this is a work of God. Everything that Paul's spoken about, all of this that we've talked about, death, judgment, resurrection, um, a new creation in Christ, all of these things, it's, it's God's work in this earth. And God has the power to do it. And so this... God making an appeal to the world through us. It's of God. God empowers us. He, he motivates us. He initiates these things. He, he brings people our way or he sends us to them. Uh, when it's received, when it's rejected, how it's spoken, all of this is from God. Why would it be from God? Well, because we can't reconcile ourselves. We're the offenders. We have nothing to bring to reunite ourselves with the God that we have offended. See, he must reconcile himself to us. 
as a Princeton scholar by the name of B.B. Warfield. I think it's Benjamin Breckenridge. Uh, B.B. is fine for me. B.B. Warfield. In the whole saving process, we supply nothing but the sinners to be saved. Sounds a little bit like what we've been learning in Galatians. We supply, what do we bring to the table? The sinners to be saved. And the consequent activities induced in us by the saving process, as in accordance with our nature, we move as we are moved upon. It's all of God. This is a God thing, the plan and the initiation of it. So we broke, we, mankind, broke kingdom protocol in the garden. When we rebelled against God, we, we broke the rule. And so that was our move. Our move was to break the relationship. And now it's God's move to restore the relationship. It is of God. So what do we bring to it, to the table, to the peacemaking table? We bring only our sin. That's all we have to offer because we've been defiled down to the very core of our being, our very nature is defiled by sin. So what can we bring God but our sin? We have no power to satisfy his anger. Uh, technically speaking, just by showing back up to him or presenting ourselves to him while we're still in sin would only enrage him more, would it not? And so the offense that we have caused has caused us to be banished from his holy presence. So any change in the relationship has to come from God. We bring our offense and then we must be forgiven. God must forgive. And that's the heart of the gospel. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the idea, and, and I hope you never fall prey to this, that, and I have fallen prey to this. When, I, when the gospel was shared with me, this was my conclusion. I need to clean myself up so I can come to God. Because he's not going to like me the way I am. So to, to gain his favor, to gain his love, I need to clean myself up. That's not the gospel message. It's not glorious enough. What's even more glorious is that Christ died for you while you were still in your sin. God loves sinners. And he has designed a way beautifully, graciously for us who have nothing to offer him to be restored in our creator, creation, sinner, savior relationship and he sends this message into the whole world you heard this message i don't know who shared this message with you i know who shared it with me but you heard it because of god's love for you he seeks he is eager if you can believe it rather than seething in anger he is eager for you to be reconciled with him he wants that restored relationship. Boggles my mind. And yet that's his nature. He's a savior, a seeker, a rescuer also by nature. Yeah, he's just and he's holy, but he also seeks and saves 
that which is lost, and it's all of God. Now, as ambassadors of this message, it's hard. It can be hard, I grant it. But it's only half as hard as it could be. Because could you imagine if we had to talk God into reconciling with us? Like God is willing and it's hard enough to get us, even with his generous offer to make amends with God. Could you imagine trying to talk God into why we should make up? Like how would you even do that? And so this passage is so encouraging in that he's already made his mind up. We don't have to talk him into it. We can't talk him into it. It's who he is. He's a God of love. And he is a relational God, a personal God, that for whatever reason, God, what is man that you should be mindful of him, I think? By God's own nature, he wants a personal relationship with every one of his creatures. He's a willing God. Jesus, in Jesus' own words, ask and you shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened for you. And we got a, a picture of that when Christ was crucified on the cross And as he's on the hill, Calvary, being crucified, or Golgotha, being crucified, what happened in the literal temple of the Jews where they came to worship is that the the, the, um, curtain was torn from the top down. The Holy of Holies. Like, this is a place you do not even get near unless you're assigned as a high priest. And now this thick curtain that separated God from man was torn wide open symbolizing that because of the work of Christ we now have access even into this place that has been cut off for centuries the holy of holies when the disciples asked Jesus teach us to pray like that wow prayers are powerful Can you believe the first words in his model prayer are our father? To address God as our father. That's familial. That's intimate. You know, he's other things. He's a lot of characteristics, but that the the Jews did not like that. They're like, that's kind of disrespectful to relate, try to relate to him on those terms. Even though he called in the Old Testament Israel, he calls them my son. But it just communicates that God wants direct relationship with us and extends this invitation. A lot of times God is so transcendent and we picture him as being so big and powerful and he's ruling the universe. I mean, making sure every little molecule is in its place. Everything is happening according to his plan. Now, it sounds like he's too busy to want to spend time with me. Or to care about all my little things and throughout my routine. And yet he is caring. He does want to know about our lives, our concerns, our burdens. The burr 
in our saddle of life. All of these things. And let me introduce an idea kind of cautiously here. But I think there's some power to it. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, the apostle tells the same church that we're speaking of this morning. And he just flat out tells them, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. That we know that Christ died for us. We're going to talk about that this morning. But if you think about God has ownership over you. He purchased you. He redeemed you off the slave, the slavery block at the auction, so to speak. So he, he bought us. Now, what about us did God purchase? Well, you'd say he purchased my mind. He purchased my heart. He purchased my soul. He purchased my whole being. And you're exactly right. He purchased everything that we are. But if you think about that, that means, in a sense, he purchased, and I'm being cautious here, he purchased a right to our time. He purchased a right to our conversations. He purchased a right to hear what's in your mind, to hear what's in your heart. And that's profound. It's not a demand. It's, it's purchasing a right. And there's this open door invitation. I want to know you. Come and sit with me and spend time with me. Even your darkest secrets, I already know them anyway. Because nothing is hidden from the sight of God. But rather than running from me, rather than hiding, just come. Expose. Let's talk about what's already there. Now that, to me, is mind-boggling. That in a sense, because I think, well, God doesn't have time for that. I don't have time for that. He does. He paid it all so that we get it all, so to speak, through the reconciling Christ. It's that union that He wants, that unity. So God, it's how He reveals Himself. Now, would we know that if He did not reveal it to us? So God appeals to sinners through His servants, through His ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. Second, Reconciliation requires trespasses. So it's all of God, the initiation, the power, and it, it requires trespasses, uh, uh, forgiveness of sin. So verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So this is part of how it works. So how can God be so welcoming? Well, it's by not counting the sins that are the offense that broke the relationship against the individual. See, he has to do something with this offense. Because if you present yourself to God in your stink, so to speak, you know, you still have your offenses. They're offensive to him. Something's got to be done with those. So what does God do with those? They have to be dealt with, have to be removed. Nehemiah 9.17 they refused to obey 
And were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, O God, are ready to forgive. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God is eager to reconcile. He is eager to remove the offense. He's eager to remove the sin and not count it against us. So, the issue is not, is God eager? Is God ready? Can God remove our sins? The, in, the real issue is, do we want them removed? If God's designed all this, and a way to remove them, it comes down to us, right? Do we want our sins removed? Are we interested in this? Do we want to be reconciled to God? A lot of times, this message of having to repent and talk about sin, it continues to kind of get watered down. We don't like to talk about sin and offense in our culture. It almost seems spiteful or hateful, or or we only want a positive spin on everything. We don't really want to face reality. We have to be careful when we think about this powerful message of reconciliation. John MacArthur says, when people evangelize, they often say, uh, do you want to have purpose in your life? Do you want to have a better marriage? Do you want to straighten out your slice on the golf course? Do you want to score more touchdowns? You know? So what are you looking for in life? Happiness, contentment, a sense of well-being? That is not it. Do you want to die in your sins and go to hell forever? Or are you interested in full and complete and eternal forgiveness? That's the message here. That's the message. Now, John MacArthur, if you listen to him or know him, he's a a straightforward kind of person. Not everybody appreciates his his demeanor there because he does straight. He cuts straight to the chase. And I I can't say that if that was your method of evangelism, that if you go to people and say, "Hey, hey, look. Nice to meet you, but I just want you to know you're going straight to hell. You're already on the path to hell unless you're reconciled to God. Uh, some people might not care for that. Might need to be a little more tactful. There might be more uh, preparation or something more thoughtful and loving and caring. And so the person feels cared for. Somehow John MacArthur gets away with these kind of things. I don't know how he does. As a matter of fact, I read a story um, about one of his encounters, and of course he travels a lot and flies a lot because he speaks a lot. So he tells a story where he gets on this plane and he sits down and you know what happens on planes. Usually you, you, you strike up a conversation. The person next to him says, oh, what do you do for a living? And here's what he said. I'm a preacher that tell people they need to repent of their sins and be reconciled to God to avoid invoking his wrath in the flames of hell. Are you interested? He said the guy got up from the seat and he didn't see him the rest of the flight. So we, you know, if that's you and and it works for you, that's the truth. 
you might need to be a little more tactful, as I said, and talk about God's plan and God's uh, eagerness to seek you out. John 4, he talks about God is seeking worshipers. He wants you. And he can deal with your sin. He can take care of that and remove that offense. There's got to be repentance, right? I mean, there's, a, there's an answer that needs to be given. Are you willing? Are you interested? Do you want to be reconciled to your creator? Or are you just perfectly content to live in sin and stay on the path to eternal destruction? The repentance has to take place. We can't water that down. Because what happens a lot is that you have uh, the gospel message could be given in such a way that people aren't encouraged or confronted to deal with their sin. And yet that's what is offending God. And so people want the blessings of the Christian life, you know, the better marriage and the better golf swing, more touchdowns, raises and you know, all the all the uh, order I want the the marriage I want an orderly household but there's a requirement because part of the gospel is we die to self we we repent of these things we acknowledge that the destructive way that I've been living is offensive to God and it and sin destroys and so I repent of that I submit it to God it's when we die to self that the blessings when we die with Christ the new life comes, the new life of Christ. So we have people that want to experience the new life of Christ and yet have never died and have not repented. That makes a mess. It makes a messy life. Because then people wonder, well, where is God? So this message of reconciliation and the power of repentance has to take place. So that we agree with God about what's right and what's wrong rather than I'd like to stay in my sin, but I want sugar on top. I want God's sugar on top of my lifestyle of sin. I want the blessings without the repentance. Now, that stuff has to be removed. We've got to figure out how we're going to remove it so that we can be restored to God. And that is what Paul's talking to us about in this message. So, it's all of God. And it requires a removal of transgression or sin. And then third... Reconciliation is by obedient faith. So therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know what that does? That requires a response. God's invitation to be reconciled requires, what is RSVP? It requires a response. So God is eager. He will forgive. He'll remove our sins. We'll figure. We'll. I'll show you how in, in the next uh, point. He'll remove the filth. Will we accept this? It's a gift. The God of grace. You just bring your sin. You just bring your offense. And God removes it. But it begs a response. It requires a response. And the response that God is looking for is repentance and a confession of faith. We repent on how we've offended the Lord. And then we say, you are my king, my God, the only God, my creator. I now 
trust in you. I forsake my own ways and the ways of the world and I put my trust in you. I literally lay my life at your feet because you are a great shepherd and you can do a better job at instructing me and counseling me through with your word and your truths than I can on my own and I'm trusting in you to work in me. So what is our response to God's generous appeal of reconciliation? And then lastly, reconciliation is the work of substitution. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. To quote uh, B.B. Warfield again, he says, If reconciliation is the heart of the gospel, substitution is the heart of the heart of the gospel. Because that's how it all comes together. That's how reconciliation is even possible. It is through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. How does God remove The offenses out of the way. How can he justify you? How can he justify his friendship with you? If you are still in sin. And you have defiled his law and broken the law. How can he fellowship with such a sinful person? If he's so holy. And we're just law breaking enemies. It's through substitution. So think about this. This is, this is substitution, meaning that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Let's say you have received the letter. You're of age now. And part of your duty as a citizen of the United States is to, to serve on the jury. And so you've been given jury duty. And so you go uh, into the courtroom. You're part of the jury. And there's a hardcore criminal that is on trial. And he just stands up. And he looks the judge just right in the eye. And he's very, very sincere. And he says, Your Honor, I plead guilty. I sincerely confess I kidnapped those children. I raped those women. I killed those people. And judge, I am truly sorry. I see the hurt. I see the pain that it's caused in the remaining loved ones. I see how much it's broken families. It's tearing people apart. I see that their lives will never Be the same because of my sinful actions. Your honor, I will never do it again. Now I have confessed to this court as sincerely as I possibly can. I've confessed every crime that I am aware of. Judge, please forgive me and let me go. And you're in the courtroom and the judge says... That is the best, most sincere confession that I have ever heard in my entire career as a judge. 
Sir, you are free to go. What do you do with that? Now, there's some, there's some powerful lessons in there, right? I mean, that was very uh, magnanimous of the judge, very generous, very forgiving. It touched his heart to see this supposed change of heart. But what's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture is that the whole purpose of having a legal system is to uphold the laws that you have put in place. And the only way in our world that we can keep peace and order is through maintaining the laws. And so what happens if just based on a sincere confession... We let people free. Is that our idea of justice? That's not God's idea of justice. You see, our sincere confession as real and sincere in heart, and that was a good confession, that is not what removes our sin. It is substitution. It is the fact that this innocent, holy, perfect Lamb of God willingly took our place and bore the wrath that we deserve. Our offenses, every one of our offenses, bore down on Him God's holy wrath. So He takes our sins upon Himself and dies in our place. Substitution. And not a single sin was missed. Past, present, future for every believer everyone that will step foot in heaven it's because of the substitution that took place on that cross not because of our confession you see because now our offenses have been paid for then the judge can say the penalty paid in full sir you may go and enjoy your freedom that is the heart of the heart of the gospel of reconciliation. It's a display of tremendous, undeserved grace. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Substitution. On the cross, God treated Christ as if he had committed personally every sin ever committed in every person who would ever believe. Though in fact, Christ committed not one of them. Why? Because God is just. God is holy. And He doesn't just let us go on a sincere confession. His laws that are broken, the price must be paid. That's how peace and order is maintained and justice. He fulfills it. The wages of sin is death. Not just a good confession. So God treated Christ in that way. All those deaths in one act. On the cross. And it works both ways. 
So not only does he remove our sins and put it on himself and then die, pay the price, but in return he takes his perfect life that is not at all offensive to God, that is beautiful in the sight of God, and he takes his reward and his merit and he gives it to us in exchange, substitution. And so now all the warmth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, enjoyed in this Trinitarian relationship has been open for us to enjoy. Yeah, that means crying out to God for help when you think you can't go another day. He wants to hear it. Or that just means sharing a little joy, a little blessing. Thank you, God, for that green light. I was in a hurry. I mean, the whole world. He opened the world up for us. By giving us the gift of his righteousness. We did not live the perfect life. And yet we stand before God as if we did. And get all the pleasures. And the blessings of it. Substitution. So are we righteous? Like in real life? No. Remember in Galatians we are righteous by declaration. Because in the high court, this substitution has taken place and you are righteous by declaration, by participation. No, we still sin until we get to heaven. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. And he was as saved and reconciled as you can be in this world. So let's just conclude with this one more time as we as we. Leave pondering God's invitation, our response, whether we have been reconciled to God or we've all or not, or we're already reconciled and now we're enjoying this relationship we have and we are serving God as his ambassadors. See, God treats Jesus on the cross as if he lived your sinful life so that he can treat you as if you lived Christ's perfect life. That's where we stand. That's a reality of the world that we live in. Substitution that works both ways. And that is good news for sinners that are not saved. And that is good news for sinners who have been saved. God is so eager to reconcile us and to bring us into his house and to see that Seat us at the the table of fellowship to be our master, our king, our brother, our friend. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.